So back in the 60s, it must have been, you may have remembered this song from uh, radio and so on. The words go like this. Oh, well, oh, bless my soul, what's wrong with me? I'm itching like I'm a itching man like a tree. My friends say I'm acting wild as a bug. I'm in love. I'm all shook up. Man, mm, ooh, yeah, yeah, are the actual lyrics. I'm in love. I'm all shook up. So today we're going to talk about being in love. I asked you the question, what does it mean when we say fall in love? What exactly happens when you fall in love? We're going to talk about the, the third kind of love that the Greek language understands, and it is the kind of love called eros. And we're going to review a little bit um, the things that we've seen already, that there are these three words. The first word is agape, which is a mature, full, covenant kind of love. The second kind of love is phile, which is fondness or liking someone. It's kind of the brotherly love sort of a thing. And then today we're going to talk about eros, the third kind of love that um, the New Testament would, would recognize. So you've been looking forward to this talk about eros, and I've not been. And fortunately, I discovered some things that are going to just help me totally skirt the whole question of sexuality. Uh, and if, if you're watching online, you may want to chat along the way and say, what? what's wrong with him? Why doesn't he just go at it and tell us what he wants to tell us? And you can send your messages to us. We'll collect them before the time is over and give a little bit of a response to them. But what is this all about? Um, I'm going to talk about the book The Four Loves by C.S. Lewis because that was the book that helped me skirt the issue. But it helped me skirt the issue altogether in an, in an appropriate way. I'm trying to make sure I get those words right. Let, let me give you a couple of quotes from The Four Loves by C.S. Lewis, um, which really made me think and I think kind of will turn our heads and hearts in the right direction when we come to this third kind of love. Uh, in The Four Loves, Lewis says this, sexuality makes part of our subject only when it becomes an ingredient in the complex state of being in love. That sexual experience can occur without eros, without being in love, and that eros includes other things besides sexual activity, I take for granted. And I thought, oh, well, that's good. So it's, it's more. It's more than that. He says, a man in this state, and, and he's fairly male in his writing, you would recognize that as he was a person of the 40s and 50s and 60s. He says, a man in this state really hasn't leisure to think of sex. He's too busy thinking of a person. The fact that she is a woman is far less important than the fact that she is herself. He is full of desire, but the desire may not be sexually toned. He says, Eros is noblest or purest when Venus is reduced to the minimum. So I'm going to repeat that because I think that's the, the crux of it. He says, Eros is noblest or purest when Venus is reduced to the minimum. Sexual desire without eros wants it, the thing itself. Eros 
wants the beloved. There's the point. So I brought up another word, the word Venus, and you think, well, why are we talking about Venus now? Well, it's a good season to talk about Venus because Venus is that bright morning star, the one that you see when the sun is about to rise. And Venus actually is is being sort of eclipsed um, by Saturn and Jupiter these days. So if in the evening, if you get to go out and look at the sky, you will see the other two stars or planets, Saturn and Jupiter. In fact, they're going to converge as the month goes on. And they're going to kind of eclipse, not literally eclipse, but they're, they're going to figuratively eclipse um, this other kind of love, the Venus kind of love. And I think that's properly so. So what I'm wanting to do today is have us understand that Venus needs to be placed in its proper place. It it needs to be positioned in its proper place. And what C.S. Lewis is saying is that Venus is not the thing. It's not the thing that we're after. What we're after is Eros. I had always thought that Eros would mean Venus until I began to understand what Lewis was saying. So Venus is the sexual desire, is the sexual activity that may be part of Eros, and we won't skirt that, but it's not the core, it's, it's not the crux. And what Lewis is wanting to say to us is that there's a kind of love that is the falling in love kind of love, it's the being in love kind of love, which has nothing primarily to do with the sexual activity of love. The sexual activity may be the icing on the cake, or it may be the celebration, but it is not the thing that we're after. It's not the aspect of love that would be characterized in the, the bundle of Christian love. So here are the three kinds of Christian love. There's the love that's agape love, there's the phile kind of love, and there's the eros kind of love. And until last week, I hadn't really put together something that Bill showed me later on. He drew a little diagram. And the fact that all three of these kinds of love form a composite sort of view of biblical love. And in fact, the love that God has for us is all three. And we're going to talk a little bit about that today as we unpack this a little bit farther. So the first one is very clear. The agape kind of love certainly is that mature, committed, covenant kind of love. It's, it's the love that if you were to go to the, whole, the Hebrew scriptures, you'd be looking for the word chesed that we've talked about. The chesed love of God, which is his covenant faithfulness. It's the way that he loves us because he's in a covenant relationship with us. Um, it is the kind of love that is celebrated in the Psalms, as we saw, that begins every morning by marveling in God's chesed, his covenant love, and then in the evening reflected on the fact that God's faithfulness has shown up during the day. And then in between all of that, we practice out our love for one another. But it's a lovely thing to be able to to sort of exalt God and say he's a God who is characterized by love, first of all, by agape love. He is absolutely true to his covenant and always will be. And we should be modeling ourselves after God in this aspect of love for sure. That we need to be committed to the kind of of love that is relentless 
um, in his practice. What Mary just shared with us from 1 Corinthians 13 is about that kind of love. How does it behave? What does it look like when you're covenantly faithful to someone in the relationship called agape? The second kind of love that we saw last week is the love that is characterized, as we've been seeing, by the word fondness. Again, I commend to you Brennan Manning and his great works on Abba's Child and Ragamuffin Gospel, where he talks about the fact that, very simply put, your father is very fond of you. And so we, first of all, understand and grasp that God is absolutely committed to us to love us in his faithfulness all day long, all the time. But then beyond that, maybe it has escaped our notice that God is actually fond of us. That when God looks at us and when God gazes at us, he finds something in his heart that responds to that gaze in saying, I'm, I'm really fond of that person. I like that person. Sometimes it's harder for us to appreciate that God is fond of us than it is to appreciate that God loves us with agape love. He's supposed to love us with agape love. But does he have to be fond of us? The truth is he is fond of us. He likes to be with us. He likes to take a walk with us. He likes to know about our lives. He likes to converse with us about our lives. And in, in doing that, he shows this warmth of fondness that he has for us. Similarly, we follow that example and, and we have friends around us of whom we would say we're quite fond of them. And it's something that happens kind of without our thinking, without our realizing that there are certain people and we're just fond of them. We like being with them. The truth of the Bible is that God actually is fond of every single one of us. It's like, you know, God is not going to just sort of apportion out this group of people and say, well, I'm fond of them, but I kind of put up with these others. He's fond of all of us, which is a lovely realization. The third kind of love is being in love. And can we say that God is in love with us with some meaning in, in that statement? Well, first of all, I think we need to extract Venus from this whole notion of eros love. Now granted, eros gives us some words about sexual activity and sexual love. The word erotic comes to mind. It comes from the Greek word eros. But Venus was the Roman goddess of love. If you were to go with Paul to the Mars Hill walk that he took in Athens, and he saw the, the various altars, and he was moved by what he saw, and then he had a little conversation with the people of the Areopagus, of the, the Council of Religious Things. And he said, I noticed that along with all of the other altars, there's this altar to the unknown God. And I'm going to tell you about that God. As Paul had taken a walk around Athens, he undoubtedly saw an altar to Venus. He undoubtedly saw one of this pantheon, these, these five gods, among all kinds of other gods, lesser gods, Venus would have loomed large in Athens on Mars Hill. And Paul says, even though when you walk around Athens and when you try to bring tribute to the various gods, 
you have this one and then that one and the other one. He said, you strangely have this altar to the unknown God. So I'm going to tell you about the God that's more important, actually, than Venus. Then Aphrodite would be the, the Greek equivalent of the goddess Venus. And so we need to understand Venus in her proper place. We need to get her in her proper place. And when she's in her proper place, we can celebrate who she is. This aspect of Eros love. But let me take you a little bit further today. And I'm going to talk to you about we, what we have often called types. I grew up in the Brethren movement uh, kind of teaching and understanding. So those of you who grew up in that understand all that I'm talking about. You have a Schofield Bible, you have a Believer's Hymn book, and you don't need anything else. But you're going to learn a lot about types. Everything is a type of something to, to the point that, that I kind of threw it away and said, that's just nonsense. That's, it's what my, what my dad talked about all of the time. All of his sermons were about types. So if you were to take the tabernacle, for example, and you're a good brethren preacher, you would have found types, types, and more types in the tabernacle. Everything was a type of Christ. What that means is everything was a symbol of Christ. Everything was a foreshadowing of Christ. It came right down to you know, the brass fittings or the kind of skins that were on the curtains or what materials were used. And you know what? Much as I would like to have thrown that away and said that's just nonsense, it actually makes sense. Every single part of the tabernacle and all of its construction and all of its ingredients, all of its materials, it was all about Christ. And the wonderful realization is that the whole Bible is actually all about Christ. And so the, the idea of types is very commendable for a way to approach Bible study. Wherever you are in reading the Bible, trying to understand it, it's fine to lay over what you're reading with this notion that somehow or other it's also about Christ. Whatever else it's about, and it can be about more than one thing. That's one of the beauties of the Word of God, is that every time you look at it, there will be something new, something fresh. But as well as that, you can say, it's not just to be kind of nailed down in a historical, grammatical kind of a way, but mystically, what's in the Bible by way of stories and by way of accounts is altogether about Christ. So one way that we understand the Bible is that the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, was the story that was simply anticipating Christ. And those that were followers of Christ in the New Testament were discovering to their joy, to their delight, that what they had learned in the Old Testament was actually about Jesus. So, for example, the disciples on the road to Emmaus they were confused over what had happened. Their master had been taken and had been crucified. And Jesus came along and started walking with them. And he said, why are you so sad? And they said, well, where have you been? Have you, haven't you been following the news? This person whom we thought was the Messiah of the Jews, they've taken him and they've crucified him. And Jesus kind of spoke to them maybe a little sternly and said, why, why are you so slow to understand? And he showed them himself 
in the prophets. He showed them that the Old Testament was all about him and that what was talked about in terms of this coming king, this Messiah that the prophets were, were longing towards was totally fulfilled in him. So passages in Isaiah, for example, about the servant. Who was the servant? The story of David the king. Why is David the king so important in the future of Israel as well as the history of Israel? It's because all of it was also about Christ. Was the story of David about David? Yes. But it was also about the Davidic throne that Christ would come and he would enthrone himself in. So we see in, in so many ways that stories and narratives and events of the Bible are types of Christ. Now one place that um, my dad loved to preach from was the Song of Solomon. And some of you were saying, I wonder if he's going to talk about the Song of Solomon. I mean, it's a part of the Bible you shouldn't really read, should you? Or, or, or does it have to have like, um, you know, a, for those with parents' accompaniment or approval or those who are 18 and over, is that the kind of book it is? Well, one way around it is to say it's not, it's not about sexual love. It's about a type of Christ. Here's, here, here's, here's the point. It's actually about both. It is an erotic love story, to be true. It is graphic, and the Bible unabashedly holds up Venus, we would say, and says, in her proper place, and, and that's it, in her proper place, she is glorious. She's wonderful. And, and see, what has happened today is that we have taken Venus right out of her proper place. Haven't we? We've made her the thing. And as we have made her the thing, we have lost what Eros has to offer to us. But, but back to this notion of types. When we look at the Song of Solomon, it is perfectly um, laid out in, in a conversation between um, a lover and his beloved. I really enjoy the message, and particularly in Song of Solomon, because while the, the text doesn't tell us, Eugene Peterson sorts out who's talking. So paragraph by paragraph, is this the lover, or is this the Shulamite, or are, is it the chorus of women who seem to be talking about their love? So the Song of Solomon ostensibly was by Solomon, and it was about one of the women that he loved, and so this is not the place for me to talk about whether Song of Solomon is an example of anything, because... He had more wives and concubines that you can shake a stick at, so what right does he have to talk? Or maybe he has an incredible right to talk about loving women since he's done so much of it. But nonetheless, in the type of Song of Solomon, it is a beautiful expression of Christ's love for the church. In the Old Testament, Israel is called the wife of Jehovah. In the New Testament, the church is called the bride of Christ. And in, in both of those, uh, what I want to suggest is that Eros belongs in the way that we describe the love of Jehovah for his wife and the love of Christ for his bride. So we'll get Venus in her proper place, 
but we will say, wow, have we, have we really fixed our thoughts on Eros rather than having Venus kind of um, usurp an inappropriate place in, in our thinking? And so when we do that, I was going through the Song of Solomon and thinking, well, what's a good example of how that this is a type of Christ? And the whole book is a great example. So you ought to go home and just read it. Read it to your wife. Read it to your husband. Read it to yourself. Read it in the context of your relationship with Jesus as your bridegroom. So one little piece of it kind of appealed itself to me. And it's in Song of Solomon 2, verse 13. It says this, O oh, get up, dear friend, my fair and beautiful lover. Come to me. Come, my shy and modest dove. Leave your seclusion. Come out in the open. Let me see your face. Let me hear your voice. For your voice is soothing and your face is ravishing. That's a lovely piece of erotic, poetry, isn't it? It is also a lovely piece of the typology that the scripture is full of about God's relationship to us. Jehovah, the husband of Israel. Christ, the bridegroom of the church, his bride. And as we think about how this kind of love is manifest, it is the falling in love kind of love we're talking about. And that's different, right? It's, it's, it's not agape love, not, not the covenant love. It's not f- fond kind of love. It's not liking kind of love. It's this state of being in which you're in love with someone. You've fallen in love with someone. And how do you describe that? Um, I, I've had lots of people try to describe what it means that they have fallen in love. Some people want to talk about falling out of love, and I don't know how you do that. Um, But how do you fall in love? What happens when you fall in love? Something overwhelms you. And as Lewis points out, um, the Venus part of it is, uh, unfortunately, it looms large. And he's right when he says that Eros is noblest or purest when Venus is reduced to the minimum. So think about this in in the context of human relationships, in the context of marriage relationships and love, and think of it in terms of our relationship with God, with, with Christ, with the Song of Solomon being a great example of the typology of the Bible in trying to explain to us in human terms what it's like to be God and what it's like to be in a relationship with God. What it's like to be in a relationship with God is to be in a relationship in which God would simply say to us, I fell in love with you. And to have fallen in love with us is to have been overwhelmed with his fixation on us, that that we are the object of this love. And this little piece of Song of Solomon, it, it, it kind of appears as, as though it were the Lord talking to us and, in a sense, teasing us out um, as the lover tries to tease out his beloved. And the passages of Song of Solomon are, are, are graphic and, and beautiful 
in the first chapter, we have her describing herself. Um, she says, I'm dark, and he says, but lovely. She says, like the tents of Kedar. He says, like the curtains of Solomon. Do you, do you see the difference? I'm black, but lovely. She's saying, I, I am, I'm not beautiful to behold. And he says, you're lovely. She says, I, I'm like the tents of Kedar. The tents of Kedar were, were black, gray, canvas sort of tents. The curtains of Solomon were glorious in color. So the Shulamite is answering back to her beloved, and she's saying, I'm nothing to be loved. I'm nothing to look at. And the beloved, on the other hand, is saying, are you kidding me? You're lovely. You're like the, you're like the curtains of Solomon. And she says, well, I've not taken care of myself. I've been so busy, and the lover will have none of it all the way through. And, and then you have this chorus of these attendants of, of the Shulamite, and they will say, so tell us about this one, this lover of yours that you're, that you're talking about over and over and over again. And she is moving in and out of resisting his love and being enthralled in his love and by his love. And so it is in our relationship with Christ, our bridegroom. He's saying, you need to understand that I am looking at you as Solomon did, as the lover did to the Shulamite, to the one that was beloved. Christ is looking at us and we're saying, there's nothing in me that should be attractive to you. There's nothing in me that should cause you to notice me. And at the same time, the Lord Jesus is saying, really? I'm taken by you. I'm consumed by you. N not by what I get from you. Not by some transaction like a Venus transaction. I am simply enthralled by you. I am deeply, deeply in love with you, whatever it means in, in, in that comparison, that he has fallen in love with us and stays in love with us and is a person in love. Yesterday, coincidentally, I had a, a bridegroom who wrote his own vows to his bride, and he said, um, back when we were in high school, I loved you. And I didn't realize that I was in love with you. And I thought, well, that's a, a mature um, observation on the part of a, of a young groom. He's saying, I loved you, wh whatever that was, and now I realize I'm in love with you. When did that happen? Did it happen in a class one time when I noticed you, noticed you in a fresh way for the first time? I don't know. How does falling in love happen? Well, there's something lovely about, about the mystery of it, isn't there? Something lovely about the magic of it that you can't explain. It's being all shook up. Where you say, I'm in love. I'm all shook up. And as we put all three of these kinds of love together, to understand that God loves us with every kind of love that he could muster, that he could um, demonstrate, in all of the things that he could do. And so while we many times would find ourselves as the one 
that is being chased by the one that is the stag that is showing up or the one that has come into the garden or the one that um, she's sort of wondering, well, where is he? When's he going to appear? In, in all of that, this little passage um, is a, a beautiful invitation that Christ has for us. Here's what he's saying to you and to me. To, maybe to a reluctant lover. Not reluctant because he's not beautiful, but reluctant because we think we don't deserve it. We, we don't have the beauty that would be commensurate with the kind of relationship that, that Christ is interested in. He says, oh, get up, dear friend. My fair and beautiful lover. You go, no, come on. Yes, fair and beautiful lover. Come to me. Come, my shy and modest dove. Isn't that a beautiful little expression? That the Savior is looking at us and saying, don't be shy, don't be modest. Being shy is saying, oh, I'm not, I'm not worth it. Being modest is, there's nothing about me. And the Savior would answer back, leave your seclusion, come out into the open. Is there some way in which you've not come into the open in this kind of relationship between God and the Savior and the Holy Spirit and you? So just as we wondered last week, about whether we understand fully or practically that, that God is fond of us. Today, we need to understand that God is desperately in love with us. I, I mean, he has spent everything that he could to procure the wife or the bride that we are. There's nothing that has cost anybody more than what it has cost him to have this wife, this bride. So he says, let me see your face. Let me hear your voice. For your voice is soothing. You say, yeah, come on. Well, God inhabits the praises of his people. Your praise is a soothing sound to him. The prayers of his saints waft up into his presence. He says, your face is ravishing. Shulamite says, no, it's not. And he says, oh, yeah. It is ravishing. I am consumed with it. I am taken by it. What has God done? Because of covenant loyalty, because he's just frankly fond of us, because he has this kind of eros love for us. God so loved the world in all of these facets. He so loved the world that he gave his only son. It's almost as though we would think, well, what more is there to say? He loved the world so much and everyone in it that he gave his son. And then we, we, we find that his using the analogy or more than the analogy of Jehovah as his wife or the church as his bride. We find passages like John 14 where it is just jam-packed full with the eros love of Christ. Jesus says, your hearts are broken because I'm going away. Because the one who is the love of your heart, the love of your life is leaving you. 
don't be upset. Don't let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God. Believe in me as well. In my father's house. And then it, it, it was eyes lighting up realization what this was all about. In my father's house, there are many dwelling places. Just like for every bridegroom of the time, there was a chamber, there was an apartment, there was a room in his father's house that was specially designed for his bride. And Jesus is saying, look, that's what's true for you. In my father's house, there are many of those. And I'm going to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I'm going to come back. And if I come back, you can come and be with me where I am. What does the beloved want of his loved one? To be with her. So in the many vows that are spoken, some ridiculous and outlandish and some very meaningful and tender, Oftentimes there is, I can't believe that from this day forward, we're going to be husband and wife. We're going to make a family together. We're going to build a family together. We're going to be in a house together. Because as I have discovered that loving you has become falling in love with you and being in love with you, that means I want us to be together. In my father's house, there are many dwelling places. When Jesus is telling stories, he's kind of teasing his disciples, teasing his followers. He tells stories about the bridegroom coming back and the attendants watching for the bridegroom coming and saying, here are these people who are positioned along the way and one day they call out, behold, the bridegroom's coming and the bride gets herself ready. When we get to Revelation, we're told that the bride has made herself ready. So if there's anything in us still that is not worthy of the relationship that we have, that might be true, actually, in terms of what we look like and what we do, even while our person whom we love is saying, I, I don't see that anymore. We see that it's there, and we prepare ourselves so that when our attendants call out, the bridegroom's coming, we say, I'm ready. My dress is ready. My dress is white. It is radiantly white. And when the bridegroom comes, he brings the bride, and they go back to the father's house, and he says, what's next? I know, a great wedding feast. When we sit down and we celebrate and we feast and party forever and ever and ever because that's what I wanted. What has God been up to? From the very start of time, from the very dawn of time, what he has been up to is getting a wife for himself, a bride for himself. What is the relationship that God wants with us? It's not a relationship of creator and created, even though those are both true. It's a relationship of love. And, and how do you parse out that love? Well, you take the three words that we have to start with and say, in every respect, God loves us in these ways. I'm sure that for some of us, maybe one love can be grasped and another can't. And 
this journey is about making sure that we explore each of them and making sure that we, perhaps as I suggest, begin every day thinking about this agape love and saying, in the morning, his chesed will be on my mind. In the evening, his faithfulness. And I will experience daily this agape love that he has for me. That day by day, I will try to figure out what it means to be his friend. To talk to him as though he's my friend, because he is. To let it dawn on me that he actually is fond of me. And to run and skip along the shores of Killarney with our friend from last week and say, my father is fond of me. He's very fond of me. And then to understand that romantically, God is taken with us. And what he wanted is for this lovely dynamic of our relationship to be eternally experienced, where we in heaven with our Savior and our Father by his Spirit are joined together and we find ourselves in the glory of this relationship. It's time for Venus to be put in her right place. Um, Venus belongs as part of Eros. It belongs in our human relationships. It doesn't belong in the place in which our society has stuck it. It, it has been put there in an inappropriate way, at least. And in all of the things that we see around us, whether we go to Hollywood or we go to the wedding chapel down the street or we talk to people in terms of what they think and how they're going to practice, we realize that Venus has stolen a place that was never hers. We realize that she has become the pursuit rather than Eros, which was the provision of God for us. And so God says, let this be an example to you all that this is the way that I love you. Love one another this way. Let, let Venus be where she should be. Let those other stars that are emerging this month in the evenings outshine her. Let her be where she should be. On Mars Hill, acknowledge that she's one of the altars, but there's an altar to the unknown God to whom we all subscribe and submit and we will live full lives to the extent that we begin to discover that H have we grasped the usurpation of venus i mean do we see how all around us human love romantic love sexual love ha has been dirtied has been sullied there's no place for that in the song of solomon even as a beautiful love story. And that's where I got in my journey, was from being a type to being a beautiful love story to being back to the beginning and both and. It is both a type of Christ and a lovely human love story. The Bible's not afraid of eros love stories. And so there you go, there's the eros talk. The Bible's not afraid of sex. Sex in marriage is one of God's beautiful gifts. It is the icing on a cake. It is the celebration of a joining. But it is never the thing. 
that we ought to be after. When people talk to me and they say that in their relationship, their their marriage bed has been something that's been put aside for a long, long time. Um, that tells me that something is wrong, not with Venus. There's something wrong with, with Eros. There's something wrong if we don't experience one another in those special relationships as being in love. Not just loving because you have to. Not just being friends because you're in the same house. But are you still in love? Don't let Venus be in the wrong place. And make sure that Eros is celebrated for all that it possibly can be. Oh, well, bless my soul, what's wrong with me? I'm itching like a man on a fuzzy tree. My friend, what? how could they ever write such a My friends say I'm acting wild as a bug. I'm in love. I'm all shook up. The playfulness of God as our lover, as our husband, as our bridegroom, uh, is part of how he loves us. Um, the innocence of those lovely relationships in the early days of being in love. The wonder of what the person thinks and what the person does. The new things that that emerge day by day. The stories that come from the person's past. All of those things feed into this being in loveness. And they also feed into this love relationship that God has with us as his wife, as his bridegroom. There's a terrible part in the Old Testament where God has to ask the question, what did you find wrong with me? Will a man forsake such and such and such and such? He said, it it would never but you. You you have have taken and... What was beautiful, you have broken it and, and you have left it. You've, you've forsaken me, the source of living water, and you've made cisterns of broken clay that can't hold any water. What did you find wrong with me? And imagine if God is looking over us and saying, in, in, in this state in which I find myself, in which I am in love with you, what have you found at fault in me that is not letting you reciprocate? Is it your shyness or your modesty or, or what? Well, then be bold and come and present yourself. Show your face, God says, because I love your face. It is soothing to me. It is beautiful to me. How do I love thee? Let me count the ways. Those three, at least. There's a fourth kind of love. If you're wondering about that, that four loves, the fourth kind of love is the love of a parent for a child. That's a whole different thing. But these three kinds of love belong in our relationships. And imagine that the kind of love that God has for us is not just agape, not just love because he has to. It's love because he wants to, because he's fond of us. And because there's something in us, in the mix of us with him, that is right and fulfilling. How do I love thee? Let me count the ways.